World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This week, as the movie mogul Harvey Weinstein headed to court to face charges of sexual assault in New York, more charges were filed in Los Angeles. Allegations against him sparked the Me Too movement. We ask how it's playing out. And there's a conspiracy theory floating around Sudan that the deep state is working to discredit the fragile new democracy by clogging the roads with vehicles. Traffic is appallingly bad, but the reasons for that are probably simple economics. First up, though. Today, Venezuela's National Assembly will meet, but after a chaotic weekend, it seems the country's only democratically elected institution has two leaders, and it's not at all clear which will be in charge. One of them, Juan Guaido, has been in place for a year. He had been widely viewed as the most credible challenger to Nicolas Maduro, the country's de facto dictator. The other, Luis Parra, appears to have been hand-picked by Mr. Maduro's regime. Juan Guaido emerged to international prominence in January of 2019 when he proclaimed himself the acting president of Venezuela. Brooke Unger is our America's editor. The reason that he did that is because the guy with the actual powers of the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, had got himself re-elected in a rigged election the previous May. More than 60 countries agreed and backed Mr. Guaido, including America. But that has done little to loosen Mr. Maduro's grip on power. It's been a pretty chaotic year. There was a very dramatic episode in April where Guaido appeared outside an army base and summoned the armed forces to rebel against the dictatorial government of Venezuela and defend the constitution. And that looked for a minute like it was going to be the moment when, you know, the dictatorship was toppled and democracy was restored. But in fact, the armed forces did not come out in support of Guaido and the current government remains in place. And over the weekend, it seems that government attempted to replace Mr. Guaido in some unusual proceedings. Juan Guaido was due to stand for re-election as president of the legislature. Now, what happened is that when he tried to get into the legislature, he was barred by government uh, National Guard forces, couldn't get in, nor could a bunch of other legislators. And those legislators inside the building, uh, a kind of a rump of the legislature, elected somebody else to be head of the legislature. And that person is uh, Luis Parra, who's formerly a member of one of the main 
opposition parties, but he was recently suspended by the party because of allegations of, of corruption, which he denies. But Guaido and his supporters regard that election as being illegitimate. The proceedings weren't held under the rules. And in fact, what happened is that a larger group of legislators then convened at a newspaper and re-elected Guaido as the head of the legislature. I think something like 100 deputies re-elected Guaido as the head of the legislature. Now, the legislature has 167 seats. So 100 is a clear majority. And, you know, in the eyes of the opposition, which controls the legislature in Venezuela and in the eyes of most of the international community, Juan Guaido remains the head of the legislature and therefore remains the interim president, the acting president of Venezuela. And so what's your reading of that? What does that change for Mr. Guaido's political fortunes and that of the opposition? Well, it doesn't change anything very fundamentally. The National Assembly was the one democratically elected institution in in Venezuela. All the others had been taken over by the regime, and it continues to exist. It's not allowed to take hold of its premises, but it continues to be regarded by, you know, much of the international community as the one sort of really legitimate institution in Venezuela. So the fact that Guaido has been dispossessed of the chamber of parliament doesn't mean that he's been dispossessed of the office and the legitimacy that goes with that office. Well, as viewed from where we are, I suppose, but I mean, where, where does that leave us in terms of who is actually in charge and who can actually get anything done? Well, I mean, Maduro, the president, remains in charge. You know, last January in 2019, when Guaido assumed the interim presidency, it looked as if momentum was building towards Maduro's ouster. I mean, Guaido's assumption of the presidency was then followed by very harsh uh, American sanctions on Venezuela's oil sales. You know, Venezuela's an economy in deep crisis. The one thing it has to sell to the world is oil. The United States was its main customer for oil. It stopped buying oil. And there was a hope that, you know, a combination of public anger against the regime and sanctions would would topple the regime and would lead to a restoration of democracy. What's happened in the past year is that hopes for that occurring have been diminishing. I mean, the government has found ways to get around sanctions to some extent. It's also begun to sort of normalize the economy. So, you know, you're beginning to see Venezuela as a country that had very, very high inflation, but you're beginning to see that the American dollar replaced the bolivars as the currency. Uh, the government lifted price controls. So, you know, goods are beginning to come back into the shops. So the government has taken a number of steps to entrench itself in power, both by providing a very modest easing of the economic situation, at least for people in the capital, and evading sanctions, and continuing to control all the effective levers of power. The armed forces have shown no sign of abandoning the government. And so Maduro remains effectively in power. And Guaido remains an impotent interim president with the support of a number of important countries. But do you think that this attempt to marginalize him is kind of a a symbol of the end of his plausible challenge to Mr. Maduro's power? Well, no. I mean, I'm not sure how plausible the challenge ever was, but Guaido does remain in the eyes of much of the international community and in the eyes of, if not a majority, then a large plurality of Venezuelans, the legitimate interim president of the country. His popularity has certainly fallen. I mean, his attempts to dislodge the regime have failed and people are kind of disappointed and losing hope in, in, in the possibility of change. But he, you know, he remains the most popular politician in the country and he will continue to be kind of the focus 
of the opposition's attempts to unseat the regime. I think a more important moment will happen later on this year when the legislative elections are due to be held again. And there's a very good chance that the government will find a way to rig that election and uh, ensure that the legislature is no longer controlled by the opposition. That will make it more difficult for Guaido to exercise this kind of symbolic power he wields. But having said that, you know, he does remain the figurehead of the democratic opposition in in Venezuela. And I think will continue to be that until there's some kind of change of regime or some kind of agreement to restore democracy. And you say that he has, from the start, got to the backing of a large number of largely Western countries. What has the international response been at this attempt to defenestrate him? Most European countries, the United States, uh, have said that they continue to recognize Guaido as the interim president of of Venezuela. The so-called Lima Group, which is a group of of mainly Latin American countries that have been sort of working to try and restore democracy in Venezuela, have issued a statement in support of Guaido. So the international coalition in support of, of Guaido remains pretty strongly behind him. But, you know, the big question is whether they can do anything really effective to actually, you know, support his cause of restoring democracy. You don't sound very hopeful about that in the long run. In the long run, who knows? In the short run, you know, it does look like the regime is more firmly entrenched than it had been a year ago. And it's, you know, it's very hard to see where, where change is going to come from. Um, you know, there, there had been a process of dialogue mediated by the Norwegian government. That's dead right now, or at least it's in suspension. You know, I think one of the reasons the government was in effect able to take over or, or at least pretend to take over parliament is that some opposition politicians have kind of given up on the hope hope of a change of regime in Venezuela. So things aren't looking good for democracy in Venezuela at the moment. Brooke, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. After nearly two years of foot-dragging, the criminal trial of Harvey Weinstein in Manhattan has begun. More than 80 women have publicly accused Mr. Weinstein of sexual misconduct or harassment, including celebrities Gwyneth Paltrow and Rose McGowan. And on the same day that Mr. Weinstein appeared in a New York court, Los Angeles prosecutors charged him with raping one woman, then sexually assaulting another woman the next night during Oscars week in 2013. The criminal charges against Mr. Weinstein, all of which he denies, mark a dramatic turn in the Me Too movement, which was triggered when the accusations around the media mogul emerged. The Economist's public policy editor, Sasha Nauta, has been reporting on the New York trial. This week, jury selection starts for the Harvey Weinstein trial, and if Mr. Weinstein is found guilty of all crimes, he could face life in prison. Mr. Weinstein denies all allegations of non-consensual sex and has pleaded not guilty. 
There's been dozens of allegations, of course, but this trial specifically relates to two alleged incidents. One is related to an allegation of rape in 2013. The other is related to another allegation of of sexual abuse in 2006. Added together, there are five criminal charges. The most serious of these charges is predatory sexual assault. He could face between 10 years and life in prison. And why has this taken so long to get to trial? Well, Mr. Weinstein's got through quite a number of lawyers to get to this day, and all of them have done their very best to have these charges thrown out. These are all highly skilled defence attorneys who have found all sorts of loopholes. Initially, there were going to be cases related to three women. One got thrown out along the way. It's partly been lawyer skill. It's partly been that justice just comes slowly. And how do you think this trial will play out? The lead-up's been long. I wouldn't be surprised if the trial itself would be quite long as well. And that starts with jury selection. Finding a jury of 12 people who don't have some sort of agenda will be hard. This case is, on the one hand, narrowly, it's quite a difficult case to prove. Even though Mr Weinstein's been accused by dozens and dozens of women in the public sphere, specifically the criminal case is just related to these two women. And the defence attorneys will keep coming back to that. On the prosecution side, on the other hand, I think there will be a real effort to try to show that this is part of a pattern. And one thing playing in their favour is the fact that the judge has allowed additional witnesses to talk about other so-called bad acts that they are alleging Mr Weinstein did. That could strengthen the case of the prosecution. In fact, in the case of Bill Cosby, the comedian who is now in prison, an initial trial collapsed at the retrial in which the additional witnesses were permitted to sort of show that, again, the allegations were supported by other women who say they'd gone through similar things. That seemed to play a really key role in convincing the jury. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out in this trial. Certainly, Mr. Weinstein has become sort of totemic for the beginnings of the the Me Too movement more broadly. How do you think things have progressed since then? How do you think the Me Too movement has fared since these allegations first emerged? That's a question lots of people are asking right now. And I'm glad you ask it because in a way it's tempting to just look at the Weinstein trial and say, okay, if this succeeds, if he ends up behind bars, Me Too's been a success. And if it fails, i.e. if he walks freely, then it's failed. And of course, there's a much, much broader movement that's been happening in workplaces, in college campuses, and ultimately also in the, in, the, in a smaller extent in the criminal courts. The encouraging news, the good news, is that lots of women came forward far more initially than before to report rapes and sexual abuse, to go into police stations, etc., and to say, here's what happened to me, sometimes with very historic abuse. The bad news is that the criminal justice system just on the whole hasn't really been able to keep up. So most obviously in Britain, England and Wales in the year March 2018 to March 2019 saw only one and a half percent of reported rapes leading to charges being filed. And there's, in my opinion, a real risk, a real danger that over the medium term, women will think, well, why on earth would I go and report? That can be a very discouraging message. 
In the workplace, I think there's a bit more careful cause for hope. A lot of employers are taking this stuff serious now, or at least say they are taking this stuff serious now, at minimum by doing some of the, let's say, easy things like reviewing policies, etc. The more forward-looking ones, and I, I should say this is definitely a minority, are taking their own culture under the loop and really looking at it sort of what is it about our culture that may encourage people to think that sexual harassment or worse is okay and is not worth reporting. But coming back to the criminal justice system, what's the systemic problem there? Is it is it a matter of accusers being taken seriously, being believed, or is the burden of proof too high? Why is that number so low? It's so low partly because it is a very difficult crime to prove. A lot of rape claims are about consent. So they're not about was there sexual intercourse? They're about was it done with consent? Did both parties welcome it? And that just if you think of basic forensics is much harder to prove. The other half of it, in my opinion, is that in part law enforcement and criminal justice just haven't put the dedicated resources to investigating these crimes and haven't necessarily been given the dedicated resources that they need to pursue these crimes. But also, there's just a long history of disbelieving women's allegations of rape. There's a real perception that a large percentage of allegations of rape and sexual abuse are false, and that just is not correct. And this partly has to do with the idea of rape. You know, the cultural idea of rape is, is that it's by a stranger who's wearing a ski mask, who's got a gun. We now know that the vast majority of rape is done by people who know the victim, does not involve any weapons, and is usually done in either the home of the victim or the home of the rapist. So changing the idea of what most rape looks like in public perception is a good place to start. And so all told, a a couple of years after these allegations against Mr. Weinstein first emerged, are things better off kind of across the board? Is the direction of travel in terms of bringing perpetrators to justice and uh, the, the, the believing of allegations and the pursuing of allegations, is the scene just generally better? I do think it's too early to tell. I think the symbolism of Harvey Weinstein actually now going into a criminal court is a good thing. On the positive side, I would argue that a lot of police forces and prosecutors are aware of their own shortcomings and are starting to grapple with how to overcome them. But I'm only carefully optimistic because most rapes are still not reported. And we're living in a moment where more than any time before, girls and women and boys and men who've suffered such abuse are being encouraged to come forward with it. If they are then met with essentially a closed door, as in the criminal justice system can't really help you, I think that could have very damaging long-term consequences. None of that means that the burden of proof should be lowered or that the presumption of innocence should in any way change. But it does mean that investigations have to become more thorough, more thoughtful, more informed, more specialised. There's a lot that can be done to improve this process. And I think we're only at the start of that. Sasha, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Jason. In Sudan, life after the revolution has improved in all sorts of ways. Last April, Omar al-Bashir was forced from office after 30 years of tyranny. 
The new power-sharing government is negotiating peace in the war-torn Darfur region, has eased the dress code for women, and has improved access for humanitarian organizations. One area of life, though, has markedly deteriorated. Traffic. I spoke to many residents of Khartoum, the capital, about their traffic miseries. Tom Gardner is The Economist's Addis Ababa correspondent. One of them was a commuter called Sawad Al-Sawi, who I met at a bus stop in downtown Khartoum, as she and her friend were trying to, to get from college back home. Now, she told me that her journey used to take 20 minutes, but these days it could take up to an hour and a half. And she said she and all her classmates were turning up late to lectures every day because of this, and that it was getting worse and worse by the day. And this rise in traffic, this rise in delays has been getting worse and worse since the revolution? Yeah, so clearly traffic's not a new phenomenon in Khartoum, but what everyone I spoke with agreed is that it has got palpably worse since the fall of the old regime. And one thing they pointed to was that public transport has all but disappeared. In fact, the shortage of buses is so bad that the interim government has decreed that vehicles belonging to the police and army be used to ferry ordinary people about town. But there were plenty of buses. Where did they go? Right. So Yasir Al-Khordi, a journalist, published an explosive investigative report in September, which claimed that bus drivers had been paid by members of the old ruling party, the National Congress Party, to shirk work or to take circuitous routes in order to clog the system. That theory is really everywhere. And I, I even heard diplomats suggesting it. The idea is that the NCP or the, or the deep state is trying to undermine the new government, the transitional government, by making life difficult for ordinary people so that they become disillusioned with the transition. And so that's the sort of dominant theory for what, what's gone wrong, at least with the public transport end of things? Yes, that's the dominant theory. Another is that a group of saboteurs are abandoning vehicles in the roadways to, to cause congestion. And some are saying that, you know, that former members of the, the NCP because the party owned nearly 40,000 vehicles, they could, in theory, cause chaos on the roads if they wanted to like this. And, and so what do you make of these theories? Is there a coup conspiracy by congestion going on here? Look, I think ideas and stories like these are, are interesting because of what they reveal about, you know, the popular mindset and anxieties in a society during a fragile democratic transition. And I do think it's true that the old guard are still everywhere in, in the institutions and they can make life difficult for the new government. The Khartoum State Transportation Company is one such institution, which is still stuffed full of former loyalists. But I do think it's probably best not to chase after the conspiracy for a full explanation. I think at root, it's, it's more mundane economics. For instance, state-regulated fares are too low to pay for maintenance of buses, which run on shoddy, poorly maintained roads. You know, one bus driver said to me that a year or so ago, there were 130 minibuses working his route, and now there are only seven. And he, he said his, his own bus had been sitting outside his house for a, nearly a year for this reason. I mean, I think equally important, if not more, is simply the legacy of corruption and mismanagement in state institutions. There's been very little investment in public infrastructure over the years. And there are several big projects, such as an intercity train and a bridge across the Nile, which have been delayed for years. And actually, when I was in Khartoum, the new government launched this, this train, which had basically been sitting there idle for years, even though it was more or less ready to go. So that's one thing the government has done to kind of expedite a solution. Another is to extend roads and import many more new buses. So this problem will be fixed, you reckon? Well, it's going to take time and money. And I think you know, this is an, it's an object lesson, really, in the challenges facing Sudan's new leaders, in dealing with the legacy of corruption and mismanagement bequeathed by, by Bashir in a context in which people are impatient to see real tangible change in their lives. 
and are suspicious that there are you know nefarious forces out there working against the revolution. So it's a really difficult context to reform a country. It will be tough, but I don't think that should come as any surprise. Right. Well, if when next we speak you run a little late, I'll know why. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.